This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.45, Stronger in the Broken Places. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom. I'm a lifelong Gundam fan, and I am a fan-favorite mobile suit that was introduced at the last possible moment. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta and concerned that Katz is starting to emulate Camille's taste in women. Katz is emulating Camille in a lot of ways. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 308 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, William H., Mark, Sam V., and Ian B. MSB would not be possible without you. In Dispatches from New York this week, I find I don't have much to say. It turns out, when you never leave your house, there's not much to talk about. You may be hearing that some parts of New York State are looking at opening up in the next couple of weeks. These are much more rural places than New York City. Uh, The city is likely not going to be doing any of that until sometime next month, if even then. Yes, but how is your Animal Crossing game going? I did a very foolish thing, which is I actually wrote out all the villagers that I might like to have out of the total number of confirmed possible villagers that are available and realized that if I want one of these specific villagers to fill my empty house, I only have a 1 in 45 chance of finding one of them. Good luck, Nina. But let's talk about Gundam. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 44, The Gate of Zidane. After the recap and our talkback, we have research on the inspiration behind the name Haman Karn. But first, let's tune in to the Titans News Network. I'm Tom Thompson, and you're listening to Lifestyles of the Rich and Dangerous. This week, I'm here aboard the opulent battleship Guadon to meet with Axis Zeon Regent, Supreme Commander, and stalwart ally of the Titans, Haman Karn, and everyone's favorite tiny space princess, Mineva Lao's... Haman Karn wasn't always the powerful, confident woman determined to lead all space noids into a new era of peace and prosperity that you see before you today. She was born a tiny, defenseless baby, But she didn't let that stop her. With nothing but sheer grit, determination, and her prodigious talents, she pulled herself up out of obscurity by her own bootstraps, and at the tender age of 16, she succeeded her father as leader of Axis. Self-made women are so impressive. Born in UC-79, Princess Mineva is the scion of a distinguished spacenoid family. But like so many children, she was tragically orphaned during the One-Year War. It's a sad tale, really. Her grandfather was killed by Zeon dictator Giran Zabi. Her uncles and aunt were killed by Zeon leader Kaecilia Zabi and notorious AUG terrorist Shar Aznabal. And even her doting father died at the bloodstained hands of new-type supremacist and Karaba zealot Amuro, the White Devil, Ray. But Mineva has chosen to overcome those tragedies and look toward a brighter future for us all. So inspiring. Yes, and it's that inspiring attitude of relentless positivity in the face of a brutal and uncaring reality that has catapulted young Mineva to superstardom as the first influencer to break one billion followers on both Pinterra and Inspacegram. I guess it's true what they say. She's a new type of celebrity for a new era. I'm live here on the bridge of the Guadan. I guess you could say that this is where the magic happens. 
But while I'm waiting for my chance to interview Lady Haman about the innovative new solutions she's proposed for dealing with the growing giraffe menace once and for all, you can enjoy these highlights we recorded earlier while I was touring the ship. So is this your crib? Amazing! But how is it pronounced? Quibbly? Hang on, what kind of bird is that? Cubile? Is is this your crib? And you have a full team of artists who change the emblem behind the throne every week? Ultra lavish. Quebel Air? The opulence. And there are Toblerones in every room. Cubile? Astonishing! Why, you can see Grips 2 so clearly through these viewports. It's almost like we're right there. All that and more later in the program. But first, I've been told Lady Haman will be ready for our interview in just a moment. Fire? Fire on what? The Argama? Oh no! Lady Haman! Lady Haman, you've accidentally damaged Grips too! Excuse me, Lady Haman, Tom Thompson of TNN, do you have any comment about this tragic mishap? Will you be forming a working group to look into establishing a commission that will decide on punishments for the low-ranking Axis officers who are surely at fault? And now the recap for The Gate of Zidane. In the aftermath of Ayug and Axis's attack on Grips II, the colony laser remains inoperable, and Haman arranges to meet with Jamitov Haimem. Skipping meals and working around the clock on mobile suit repairs, Katz worries about being forgotten, while Camille just worries about Katz. When Apoli asks Camille to run a report to the bridge, Katz insists that he'll take it, and the two rush over together. They arrive to find Captain Bright and Shar talking about Haman, and Katz immediately butts in. This is none of your concern, Bright warns, and Camille tries to lead Katz away, but Katz is on a roll. He cannot believe they bowed their heads to Haman. Aren't they ashamed? How can they trust someone so patently untrustworthy? How can they work with the zombies? Shar points out that so far, Haman has not betrayed them, and Bright sighs that it's not as if they have other options. But Katz is in no mood for adults and their excuses. He flings the report to the floor and storms off. Aboard the Jupitris, Sarah heads to Sirocco's office, turning the corner just in time to see Rekoa leave. She notices Sarah but says nothing, hurrying in the opposite direction. Sirocco informs Sarah that he and Rekoa are going to the Gate of Zedan on a mission. He doesn't trust Haman and wants Sarah to stay behind as a rear guard. At first desperate to go with Paptimus-sama, the jealous and unhappy Sarah finally agrees to do as ordered. Launching with her two wingmen, she immediately goes on the offensive, convinced that Sirocco is goading her and that this is her chance to prove herself. Standing on the bridge of the Argama, Camille feels the pressure of Sarah's approach and Bright sends him out in the Zeta. Despite being outnumbered three to one, Camille is able to cleverly dodge enemy attacks, destroying one Titan's mobile suit and blinding another by shooting its mono-eye. He is caught in a missile barrage from Sarah's new Bolinok Saman mobile suit, and the cover from the explosions allows Sarah to get in close. Camille tries to convince her to stop, but she fights on, and he slashes an arm from her mobile suit. When she runs, Camille chases her. The time has come for the joint Axis and Ayug attack on the Gate of Zedan to begin. Bright orders the mobile suit teams to launch and aims the Argama directly at the enemy fleet. Camille finds Sarah's mobile suit abandoned on an old asteroid base. Knowing that he may be walking into a trap, Camille carefully makes his way inside. Down the winding halls, 
Sarah waits, gun drawn. She hears footsteps and peers around a corner to see the silhouette of a person moving down the hall. But as she approaches, she sees that it is an empty normal suit floating along with its veneers turned on. Without warning, Camille tackles her and manages to knock the gun from her hand. He continues trying to convince her not to fight, telling her that Soroka doesn't truly care for her, but she won't hear it. She is willing to die for Soroko's ideals. He ties her hands and takes her back with him on the Zeta. Haman finally arrives for her meeting with Jamitov, kneeling when she enters the room and ready with an excuse for their mistake with Grips too. But he cuts her off, demanding to know what she really wants. What Haman really wants is the revival of the Zabis. And although Jamitov has already promised her this, she knows it cannot truly happen without his death. After this shocking declaration, Jared fires at her, but misses as she drops to the floor and rolls out of the way. Popping back up to her feet, she brandishes one of her earrings. Stay back! This earring is full of enough cyanide gas to kill everyone in this room. The room shudders. The attack has begun. The door behind Haman slides open, revealing one of her own soldiers. As she escapes into the hall, she tosses the earring to the floor, and gas fills the room. Jared and Haimam escape through a sealed hatch, while the other guards in the room succumb to the poison. The Argama and the Radish have launched almost all of their mobile suits and are attacking the Gate of Zidane directly. The only suit left is the Methus, but Katz tells them he can't launch. That is, until he hears Sarah's voice over Camille's radio. His scruples overcome, he launches and joins the rest of the fleet. Since escaping Haman's gas attack, Jared has launched with the other Titans' mobile suits and has turned his focus to the Guadan. Ayug moves to defend the Axis ship, and Jared and Camille find themselves dogfighting yet again. Sarah feels a flash, a sense of Soroko's presence when she spots the Jupitress, and suddenly she grabs hold of Camille's arm, forcing him to struggle for control while avoiding Jared's attacks. She calls out to Katz over the radio, begging him not to fight, or better still, to destroy the Guadan. Camille finally has to knock her back into the wall, knocking her unconscious before he can fully regain control of the Zeta. Katz saves Camille from an attack from Jared, and the damage is such that Jared is forced to retreat. The two forces are at a stalemate. The Gate of Zidane still stands, but Axis approaches. Captured again, Sarah stands in a cell aboard the Argama. As if she cannot help herself, she turns coquettish, admiring how strong Katz has become. He credits her for making him strong. She taught him not to be so trusting. Why did you bring her here? Fa asks Camille. You knew this would happen. I still have trouble killing. Killing can't be the best solution, can it? The end of this episode, in many ways, vindicates Ayug's decision to ally with Axis. How so? We are left, at the end of the episode, with a kind of stalemate. The combined forces of the Guadan and Ayug have not been able to destroy the Gate of Zedan. The Gate of Zedan has not been able to destroy the Guadan. Which is basically what was hinted at when Haman met with Jamitov. Oh, you're going to try to destroy the Guadan? What if we destroy the Gate of Zedan? Like, she hinted that it would be a stalemate. She was correct. Mm -hmm. So imagine what would have happened if Ayug had tried to do this themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, before Axis came onto the stage, it did seem as though Ayug and the Titans were pretty evenly matched. So Haman's Axis really is the X factor that throws everything, the careful balance of power, into chaos. Haman's axis, but also the Jupitress. Yes, which in this episode is talked about like it's a separate faction. 
Well, it is. They do. <laughs> they basically don't do anything. They eyeball the Guadan and the Guadan eyeballs them. Because something else is still going on. We don't know what Paptimus and Rekoa's mission at the Gate of Zidane was. We know they did something, which is why he sent Sarah and a couple of Hyzaks to distract and delay the Argama while Sirocco and Rekoa did their thing. But we do not yet know what the fallout from that is going to be. But whatever Sirocco's true goals are, we know they're not necessarily compatible with the Titans more generally. We know that Jamitov doesn't particularly trust Sirocco. One gets the impression that simply by dint of staying alive this long, Jared is now bodyguard to the head <laughs> of the Titans himself. Yeah, isn't that so interesting seeing Jared and Hymen now interacting directly and Jared on that level? In a lot of ways, Jared also feels like a character who has grown up. So much. There's a lot less of the petulance, a lot less of the sort of impetuousness. Not that he is cautious, particularly. He's not. We see that. But he's not reckless in the same way that he was. Sorry, are you talking about Jared or Camille? <laughs> Almost like they are parallels. Hmm. Although, while they are parallel, there is a difference in their respective paths. Jared has really um, preserved that anger that has always been there. Jared is... Uh, driven forward by the anger, whereas for Camille, things are getting more complex. Camille is also angry, but Camille's anger is very different. Based on Camille's conversations with Sarah and some of the actions he takes in an effort to sort of protect and nurture cats, Camille is driven by an anger over the violence and loss of life that are intrinsic to the war. He is so upset. At the thought of Sarah dying. Dying pointlessly. And she, it's one of the first times, it is the first time in the whole episode we see her sort of like haughty mask fall away. And she seems genuinely moved by how upset Camille is at the idea of her death. It's like Camille's feelings have reached her. And it's not as though Camille doesn't have anything he would die for. But the closest that we've seen him get is being willing to die rather than kill someone he cares about. I love Camille's scene with Sarah here when she says that she would be willing to die for Paptimus Sama's ideals, for, for Lord Paptimus's uh, ideals of a new age for humanity. She would be honored to die for that. And Camille's like, you stupid idiot. There is no such thing as a good death. There is only death. If you die, that's it. And it won't matter how you died. It will only matter that you died. I don't entirely agree with Camille. I do think there are some ideals worth fighting and dying for. But in this case, he's right. Sarah is being used. But let's rewind to Jared and Camille for a second. Because what you said about Camille being angry at the situation, at the system, at the violence, at the war, is really perceptive. And all the way back in episode four of this show... <laughs> When Camille and Jared meet on the Alexandria after Camille has been captured, after Jared has unknowingly killed Camille's mother in space, Jared confronts Camille and he taunts Camille. And Camille has this devastating comeback, which is, I'm not angry at you. I realize you're just a soldier. You're just following orders. You don't matter. <laughs> I'm angry at the Titans. I'm angry at the world. And that's the divergence point for the two of them. Jared is always angry at people. Haman, Camille. Camille is angry about the situation. And even when Jared kills four a few episodes ago, Camille wasn't really angry at Jared. Camille was still just angry at the world that had created that situation. The other sort of thread of Camille's actions during this episode has to do with cats. And I mentioned earlier, he's trying to protect cats. We see cats behave pretty outrageously throughout this episode. <laughs> and Camille tries to stop him and calm him down. Camille goes behind Cats' back to Bright and says, well, maybe if we give him more responsibility, he'll you know, sort of grow up <laughs> and, and act a little more responsibly. Which is another fantastic scene um, for Camille because that's been Camille's experience. 
Katz in this episode is behaving the way Camille has in the past. It's like a concentrated dose of old Camille. Well, and and Camille's reaction stems from, like, he remembers all of the bad things that happened to him directly and indirectly because of that. He remembers being corrected by various people various times. But he also remembers his behavior has also, like, caused fights to go wrong. And (laughs) Yeah, absolutely it has. And he wants to save cats from all of that. Fundamentally... Camille understands what Katz is going through right now. He doesn't even seem that angry when Katz acts out. He's not even particularly surprised because, again, he understands. And Camille's experience has been that with adult responsibilities come adult attitudes. When I say Katz is behaving outrageously, (laughs) uh, he butts into a conversation that has nothing to do with him by his superior officers. He... I'm going to say rants at length about the fact that they're allied with Axis right now in the hearing of a bunch of other people. And the show actually makes a point of having one of the bridge crew sort of look askance and you can tell he's listening to Mm -hmm. this conversation. He can't look at them, but his head tilts ever so slightly and his eyes look sort of to the side and back and everyone is listening and everyone is waiting to see how... Bright and Shar react. And frankly, he gets treated quite lightly. And I'm not sure if that's because people feel bad, maybe, about the hand- how they handled things with Camille and are trying to do something different. Or if it's because they have a longer and more personal history with Katz. Or what. But Katz gets treated pretty lightly here. Even when he brings up, like, you bowed to Haman, like, how disgraceful, (laughs) and then throws a tantrum by, like, flinging this report on the ground and being like, I'm tired of grown-up excuses, ugh, compromises for phonies, (laughs) and storms out of the room. And then he waits until he's in the Methus on the launch pad to tell them, oh, I can't do it. If you're not going to do it, tell them up front. They'll throw you in the brig again and Fa can go. (laughs) But no, he waits until he's in the mobile suit. The fighting has begun. He's on the launch pad and he's like, I will not fight for zombies. (laughs) (laughs) There were two things he seemed particularly bothered by that I wanted to unpack a little bit. He is really put off by the bow. Yes. And I have something to say about that, but I feel like it might be kind of a big digression. So let's go to number two and we'll come back to number one. (laughs) All right. And number two is Katz's reaction to allying with the zombies is very different from the adult crew members. And I'm curious as to why. Is it just this sort of like youthful naivete and idealism that, you know, he, he doesn't want the enemy of my enemy is my friend, if that means, you know, allying with someone who he finds abhorrent, even though everyone acknowledges that this is temporary, right? Everyone's pretty confident this cannot last. They're going to need another plan when it's over. It's marriage of convenience. Yes, but Katz was like seven right. on the white base during the one-year war. His like most formative experience as a child was that Xian was trying to kill him and everyone he cared about. Exactly. I was going to say, they've become like boogeymen in a way. And he doesn't say Axis, that he has a problem with Axis. He says the zombies and is, is very fixated on the fact of their being underhanded with the baddies means that they can't be trusted, even though Ayug has not been above spying and various other sort of underhanded missions. Uh, this underhanded behavior cannot be forgiven or allowed. <laughs> Cats m- may also have managed to avoid a lot of personal negative experience of the Titans. Mm. He was living on Earth. Yeah, you know he does not have that experience of. Titan's rule that Camille does. That's, yeah, that's a good point. So for him, Axis is the horrible baddie who, you know, made me an orphan, who set my life on this path. Mm-hmm. The Titans are bad, I guess, because everybody tells me they are. Uh, all right, you said you had a big digression about the bow. I did. 
You know, I don't think there is any bowing in First Gundam. I don't think it happens once. You know, I think you're right. And what there certainly is not in First Gundam is kneeling. Whereas we have had at this point like three or four, maybe five scenes of someone kneeling before a throne in an audience chamber. The aesthetics of Zeta Gundam are older than those of First Gundam. First Gundam is, you know, it was about World War I, World War II. It was about taking the first half of the 20th century and projecting it forward into an imagined future. Zeta Gundam goes even further back than that. And you can see it uh, in the way people behave, the bowing, the kneeling. You can also see it in the sort of like honor culture that a lot of the soldiers talk about. And then you can also see it in things like the decor. Look at Hyman's audience chamber. Just the fact that he has an audience chamber for one thing, but like gold filigree on the walls and on the ceiling. This is like 17th, 18th, 19th century aesthetics projected onto the future. It's like we're looking at a room on the Guadon. And to be fair, it's not a bow of mutual respect. They don't bow to each other. So it's not like a bow of greeting. It's not like, oh, we are both helping each other out. Thank you very much. He bows to her. It's like, you're asking me a favor. Although in this episode, Haman reveals how little stock she puts in these shows. She has no problem kneeling before Jamatov Hyman, even though she intends to kill him. She thinks that, you know, a blood oath on a piece of paper is meaningless. She also seems a bit surprised by how fully Ayug commit their forces. She's like, oh, what, what faithful people. <laughs> because if it were her, she would, you know, comply to the letter of her agreement, but not necessarily fully commit. We've never seen her fully commit to, like, anything. And in the previous episode, I think there's good reason to believe that the extended delay before the Guadan attacked Grips 2 was partly due to necessity, but probably also because she wanted Ayug and the Titans to weaken each other for a little while. The other thing that struck me about Katz in this episode is the degree to which he and Sarah are reflections of each other. In some ways, they're opposites, but in some ways, they are so alike it's scary. <laughs> Both desperate for recognition. Both of them explicitly mention, oh, if I don't work myself practically to death, I'll be forgotten about. Yeah. Both of them deeply skeptical of Axis. Though for different reasons, obviously, but both of them think that the mere fact of Axis's untrustworthiness means that they are the more significant enemy right now. Another thing that Katz and Sarah have in common that I think is also part of the reason why both of them are so outspoken in their opposition to uh, the Guadan, to Haman, and to Axis is that because they're younger, because they're um, not very perceptive, because they're outside of the confidence of their commanding officers, they don't realize the degree to which Bright and Shar and Sirocco are aware that Axis is not trustworthy. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not under any illusions. They don't actually trust Haman, but they have their own plans going, and they know that they have to behave in a certain way right now in order to keep this alliance going for as long as it's convenient. One thing that I think is very neat about the way this episode is constructed, at the beginning, we don't know why Haman is going to the Gate of Zidan to meet with Jamatov. We don't actually know her intentions. She might be going to negotiate with him the way it initially seems. Bright and Char, at first, because of the way they're talking about her, seem like they don't know either. But after the assassination attempt fails, when the Guadan is retreating, Bright says something like, oh, the Gate of Zidan is responding with more force than we expected. That must mean Haman failed. So he knew what the plan was. Mm -hmm. He just wasn't sure that the plan was the real plan. Right. He knew what he had been told of the plan. And of course, Katz doesn't know that's the plan. And Bright is not going to tell Katz that that is the plan. But Katz thinks, because he's like 15 or whatever, that he is the only one who has figured out that the Axis can't be trusted. 
they both, though in very different ways, completely misunderstand <laughs> their position with regards to the crew and their commanding officers. You know, Katz marches onto the bridge and butts into a conversation like he has every right to do so. <laughs> he wasn't even invited to the bridge. It was supposed to just be Camille. I've never been in the military, but my understanding is that that's not how you do. <laughs> and Sarah's jealousy vis-a-vis Rekua feels similar. Like, Sarah, you're a child and Rekua is a grown woman. And Rekua's behavior towards Sarah in this episode, even though it's very brief, kind of speaks to that. Rekua doesn't even acknowledge Sarah. <laughs> she clearly sees her, but just, you know, oh, I have I have a mission to get on with, and this is kind of weird how into Sirocco you are, so I'm just going to go. <laughs> and it's unclear if Sarah wants Sirocco's romantic attention or if Sirocco having anyone else as a favorite in any way feels threatening to her. Uh, either way, it's a bit deluded. This is not helped by the ambiguity around what she says about Sirocco, because she says uh, it's translated in English as if she destroys the Zeta, then Paptimus will recognize her. Mm -hmm. The word she uses is mitomeru, uh, and recognize is a fine translation of that. But you could also have translated it as appreciate. He will appreciate me. Or you could embrace the memes of the past decade, because you could also translate it as notice. Sarah wants Paptimus Senpai to notice her. And it's not even just that she wants to be noticed, because she specifically mentions Rekua. She tells Camille, Sirocco doesn't really like Rekua. He's using her to goad me. <laughs> uh, and this, again, reveals how good Sirocco is at manipulating these couple of women, because Sarah's response to this jealousy is not, well, to Sirocco, I'm going to go join a Yug. It's... I must prove myself even harder. I must rededicate myself to him. If he's being spiteful, then I'll I'll live up to his expectations. I'll show him I'm even better than Rekua. Speaking of his uh, manipulation of them, and of Sarah in particular, you notice after her conversation with Camille, when she's in the cockpit of the Zeta at first, she's quite quiet. She's docile. Docile, yeah. Until she gets that... Sirocco mental connection when she From sees the, the Jupiteress again. And that's when she's like activated. And that willingness to die returns as she wrestles for the controls while Camille is in the middle of dueling Jared. And then at the end, once she's been captured and she's talking to Katz, it's like she can't help herself. She turns on the charm again, like she did the first time with Katz. Oh, you're so strong now. You're like a completely different person. It's like, yeah, turns out being betrayed by a girl you like will do that. <laughs> he has that same sense of jealousy that Sarah did. You know, Sarah says, oh, but isn't isn't that good if you get stronger because of the person you love? And he's like, yeah, but you got stronger for Sirocco. <laughs> I very much enjoyed Fa's one line this episode, which is to Camille, why did you bring her here? You, you knew, knew this would happen. <laughs> I liked Camille's response to that. Foz is great. Yeah. But I loved Camille's response, which is like, I still have a problem killing people. That can't be your solution to every problem. I really wish that his line, which I think was actually like, killing can't be the best solution, can it? I wish that had been the last line of the episode. They added some narration <laughs> at the very end, but killing can't be the best solution is the best ending line. They should yeah. have just stopped it there. Just ended the show right there? <laughs> Apparently they needed us to know that Axis is on their way. This is the first time we have actually seen Axis. And that the Gate of Zedan still stands. For now. I liked the sequence where Camille and Sarah are playing cat and mouse. That was a really good Or sequence. should I say cats and mouse? I don't know, that doesn't work because cats wasn't actually there. Nope. They do a lot of really clever things with the animation in this episode, lots of great fighting sequences and inclusions and, and things that are a bit different that I very much appreciated. One of them being from that scene, when Camille arrives, he stands on what to us looks like the wall above the door to peer in, which for a show that happens in space, I feel like they really do not do enough with the fact that every direction is down. <laughs> you know, like you pick a direction, it's down now. You can do so much by just changing the orientation of characters and other objects. 
And they don't do it very often. And every time they do, I love it. Yeah, I thought that was great. I thought the episode in general was really well directed. Shout out to Koase, who is the episode director. The same episode director on By the Lake, which we also really appreciated. And if you compare those two episodes, I think you actually notice some stylistic similarities. Um, One of which is the the interweaving of different storylines in different places. The other one is a real attention, even a focus on... Uh, individual, low-level, unimportant enemy pilots. Yes, I was going to say a sort of drawing of attention to the humanity of nameless enemy pilots. Well, and they get names. That's the thing that Kawase does that a lot of the other Zeta directors have not done. Uh, Enemy pilots get faces, names, voices, personalities, and death scenes. And this includes not just pilots, I keep saying pilots, but also like the crewmen on the Guadon who get killed when... Uh, Jared's beam saber misses the Zeta and takes out a a corridor. And this is very reminiscent of First Gundam. It's something Zeta has not done as much, and I do feel like it's weaker for not doing it. We also have the asteroids with wire traps, which I thought was very clever and cool. Uh, Because it's true, a length of wire (laughs) spread out in space, you wouldn't be able to see it maybe until it was too late and you had crashed into it. And it could do depending on how fast you're going, uh, pretty catastrophic damage. Well, in these, it looks like are set to trigger explosives in the dummy asteroids. Ah, so they're like mines. Yeah. We also see some rather interesting mobile suit combat. Uh, the Zeta basically bicycle kicks <laughs> the Bjarlant, which was rather neat. It's not a judo throw because he doesn't grab hold before <laughs> he sort of like falls backward and rolls. Mm-hmm. He drops and kicks. Uh, He also then kicks the head off of another mobile suit, which was pretty neat. (laughs) Really good fighting in this episode. Uh, We don't see a lot beyond grappling with the mobile suits in terms of them using their hands and feet to fight. It's nice to see that used a little differently. I saw a second instance of something. So if there's a third instance, it's a pattern. (laughs) Oh, yeah. When Sarah's mobile suit grabs hold of the Zeta, did that remind you of anything? No. She grabs the Zeta by the neck. And I immediately thought of when Four grabs hold of the front of Camille's shirt and lifts him up. Mm. So apparently this is a thing new type girls do to Camille. Or if it happens one more time, we will know for certain (laughs) this is a thing new type girls do to Camille. That's right. We should mention Sarah's new mobile suit does appear in this episode. It's pretty neat. Yes, it is. It's got weird flashy lights on its head. And a big old claw arm. And like little horns on the side of the head, it looks like. I don't know. It's weird, but cool. This is the Bolanoke Saman. Bolanoke. Bolanoke Saman. <laughs> Saman, like Haman, but sa. Salmon. The Bowling Oak Salmon. We also get a lot of interesting framing and cuts, even in more sort of normal combat. When Camille is fighting the three mobile suits at the very beginning before the main battle has begun. There are a lot of moments where he uses his verniers to sort of like twist out of the way or onto another sort of movement plane after he very uh, accurately shoots out the mono eye of one of his enemies. We go inside the enemy cockpit where the video is like flashing off and on and we see the Zeta appear right behind him in the view screen. It's like a horror movie. It's so good. Yeah. Again, that was something that was done all the time in First Gundam. Views from inside the cockpit showing the enemy mobile suit on the monitors right before the like final moment. And generally good animation quality. Higher than some other recent episodes. It did make me realize the way the episode starts with Haman traveling to the Gate of Zidane and us not really knowing why. Zeta Gundam actually does this a lot. And when you compare it to First Gundam, it becomes very noticeable. In First Gundam, practically every episode started with the white base, more or less where the previous episode left off. And if there is some gap of time, if the white base is on some new mission, it's usually explained in an opening narration in the first minute of the episode. Zeta Gundam episodes frequently, probably more than half the time, open in media race, where the 
overall point of what's going on is unclear. I think it lends to Zeta a feeling of chaos, of uncertainty, and of confusion and complication. There is so much more going on in the narrative, and we are seeing only a tiny snapshot of it. I agree with that. I want to finish by mentioning something about the Beierlant schematics. <laughs> As a general rule, if you're watching uh, Gundam, always pause when there's a bunch of small English text flashing on the screen really briefly, because uh, they often do funny little jokes in it. For instance, uh, if you look at the Beierlant schematics, you will learn that the uh, feet are composed of three sections, uh, the Vacation, Yamato, and Again regions. Yeah, just the same part again. What's hard to understand about that? <laughs> Vacation foot. The head includes a component called the Magical Penguin Special. <laughs> And now, the research into the likely inspiration for the name Haman Karn. Lady Haman, leader of the Xeon Remnants living on the asteroid base Axis, seems like the sort of character who will inspire many of our research pieces. We've already begun to investigate her mobile suit, the Cubelet, and today I'd like to talk about her name. In the Japanese, it is Haman Khan. There's some ambiguity when you transliterate that long A sound, it could be rendered in English as the long A sound, like in Japanese, Haman Khan, or it could be an AR sound, Hamarn and Karn. The officially recognized English is now Haman Karn, but I remember a time when Hamarn Khan and Hamarn Karn were common as well. The surname Khan combined with Haman's position as leader of Axis and her ruthless demeanor, brings to mind the Central Asian, Turkic, or Mongolic political and military title of Khan, made most famous by Mongol emperors like Genghis Khan and his grandson Kublai Khan. But the title preceded them, and in fact, they were not mere Khans, but great Khans, Khagans, ruling over countless lesser Khans. If I may dig briefly into the deep lore for a moment, Haman's father is named Maharaja Khan, taking his first name from the South Asian Sanskrit title Maharaja. And knowing all of this, a reasonable person might conclude that the Khan part of her name is what it sounds like, and then go looking for another ancient word for a ruler that Tomino and company could have mutated in order to get to Haman. Yes, dear listeners, a reasonable person could have done that, and I was the reasonable person who did just that. But it turns out that for once, the origin of Haman's name is well established, at least on the Japanese side of the fandom, because Haman Karn is an anagram for the name of American mid-20th century futurist Herman Khan. In fact, in early interviews about Zeta before she appeared in the show, Tomino referred to her as Harman. Herman Khan is a divisive figure. But it's not hard to see why his work would have caught Tomino's attention, not least because, like the space colonization theorist Gerard O'Neill, Khan believed that humanity would begin living in space in the near future. Khan was part of a circle of influential social scientists in the 1960s and 1970s who were obsessed with thermonuclear war. They were sometimes called the megadeth intellectuals, after a turn that Khan popularized, which defined the death of one million people as one megadeath. And yes, this is exactly where the metal band Megadeth got its name. I was thinking that at that exact moment. I thought you might have been. Khan was, depending on who you ask, either the smartest person alive who knew everything about every subject, or a gregarious but sloppy charlatan whose work was more science fiction than actual science, and whose real talent was in creating the illusion of intellectual rigor where none existed. Or perhaps both at once. He made his start in systems analysis and game theory for the RAND Corporation, a U.S. Air Force-affiliated think tank. RAND here, by the way, stands for Research and Development. RAND was created in 1948, and Khan joined in the same year. 
The major figures at Rand were, like Khan, self-styled intellectual heavyweights exemplifying mid-century rationalism. They seemed to have all the answers for every problem, and their influence grew right up until they were invited into the halls of power by the Kennedy administration, and they were presented with an actual problem to actually solve, a war in a little country called Vietnam. The results were, to put it mildly, not very impressive. But by then, Khan had moved on from Rand, and he had started his own Hudson Institute. His own contributions to U.S. policy in Vietnam are not so clearly understood, but Khan himself did take credit for suggesting the term Vietnamization to describe the Nixon administration's strategy for reducing U.S. commitment in Vietnam. But it would not have been the advice that he gave to various U.S. presidents that brought Khan to Tomino's attention. Rather, Khan burst into the wider public eye in 1960 when he published On Thermonuclear War, a collection of his thoughts about what a nuclear war might look like, how to avoid it, how to fight it, what winning might look like, and what life would be like in the aftermath. Central to his work was the idea that the then-prevalent Eisenhower administration doctrine of massive retaliation, should the Soviet Union make even one move against the NATO alliance, was actually calculated to fail. Threatening utter annihilation for even the slightest provocation meant that the threat had no credibility. Instead, Khan emphasized the importance of a second strike capability. Deterrence could only be achieved, he believed, if the Soviets understood that even a perfectly planned and executed surprise attack would not be sufficient to prevent the United States from delivering a devastating counterattack. This you might recognize as the basic skeleton of mutually assured destruction, the idea that a tense but stable peace would prevail so long as the two combatants both had the capacity to totally eradicate the other. Indeed, the term mutually assured destruction was coined a few years later by a strategist who was working for Khan at the Hudson Institute. I need to pause here for a moment and note that I'm going to be giving the publication years for a bunch of Khan's works, but in researching them online, there was no consistency in the publication dates listed for the same books across different sources. Usually reliable ones like Wikipedia, Google Books, and Amazon all state publication dates that can be as much as a decade apart. And book reviews, biographies, and bibliographies weren't much better. I've gone with the dates that seem most likely, but take all of them with a grain of salt. So, On Thermonuclear War was hugely influential, but, like its author, also tremendously controversial. Plenty of people found the whole notion abhorrent, and others objected to the flippancy with which Khan seemed to treat the subject. Some people called it the best possible argument for disarmament. An editor at Scientific American called it a moral tract on mass murder, how to plan it, how to commit it, how to get away with it, and how to justify it. The National Review, to absolutely no one's surprise, thought that it was good, but Khan should have gone a little bit harder against the communists. Among those influenced by On Thermonuclear War was movie director Stanley Kubrick, who met with Khan repeatedly during the production of Dr. Strangelove. Kubrick made his staff read On Thermonuclear War, and the notion of the doomsday device which appears in the movie is itself taken from Khan's book. This is a device which, in the event that the United States is attacked by the Soviet Union, will immediately and automatically destroy the entire world. Khan himself was part of the pastiche of historical figures that was combined to create the titular Dr. Strangelove. In the late 60s and then through the 70s, Khan's focus drifted, and he got into the predictions game. He published The Year 2000, a framework for speculation on the next 33 years, which included a section on the future technological developments that he thought likely to have the biggest impact on the world. He didn't mention mobile suits, but he did put new sources of power for vehicles, extremely high-strength materials, and multiple applications for lasers in his top 10 list. So that's ultra-compact fusion reactors, gundanium alloy, and the colony laser. In 1976, he wrote The Next 200 Years, and in 1982, he followed with The Coming Boom. 
but most relevant for our discussion, Kahn had a particular interest in Japan. In 1970, he wrote a Time Magazine article, Toward the Japanese Century, and he followed it up with The Emerging Japanese Superstate, Challenge and Response. In 1979, he wrote The Japanese Challenge, The Success and Failure of Economic Success. Each of these was translated into Japanese, and they proved hugely successful there. Well, yeah, I'm sure everyone in Japan loved hearing about how they were a world power again, and considered a rival for the United <laughs> States. You are not wrong. He was actually one of the first Western analysts to predict the meteoric rise of the Japanese economy through the 1970s, even predicting that the Japanese economy would eclipse that of the United States by the year 2000. His optimism endeared him to the Japanese leadership, and so much the better that he turned out mostly right about most of it. In 1970, shortly after the publication of The Emerging Japanese Superstate, the New York Times' Tokyo correspondent wrote up a glowing piece talking about how Khan's predictions were the talk of the town, and one Japanese politician was quoted saying that, thanks to Khan, even barbers were chatting about the gross national product. This made Khan a bit of a celebrity in Japan, and won him admirers among Japan's leadership, allowing him to become a confidant to a succession of Japanese ambassadors. Part of his approach in The Emerging Japanese Superstate was to draw a comparison between Japan in the 1970s and Prussia in the 1870s, both rising powers with strong industrial economies ready to emerge from secondary power status and make their marks on the world stage. I suspect this comparison in particular may have interested Tomino very much indeed. Likewise, Khan's predictions that the rest of the 20th century would be relatively stable, and then followed in the early years of the 21st century by an international conflagration, much like the First World War, probably would have aligned very well with Tomino's ideas about where the world was going. I should note that, of course, not all of his predictions were borne out. For example, uh, he predicted that someday in the not-too-distant future, there would be a tripartite alliance between the U.S., Japan, and the Soviet Union confronting a Chinese and European pact. That still seems pretty far-fetched, although not as far-fetched as it did five years ago. In his last major work about Japan, 1979's The Japanese Challenge, he advocated for a major shift in Japanese economic policy, away from the then-prevailing aim of growth for the sake of growth, and toward investment in the infrastructure of domestic life. Invest in environmental protection, build retirement communities for the aging workforce, and bring down the astronomical prices that Japanese consumers had to pay for the necessities of daily life. In short, stop trying to make the nation richer, start trying to make life better. So, we know why Herman Kahn was so well-known in Japan, and we can guess how he came to Tomino's attention. Tomino probably read Kahn's work alongside O'Neill's High Frontier as he was developing his ideas about what the universal century would be like. But what is it about the lady from Axis that made Tomino think of Herman Kahn? Well, if I had to speculate, and dear listeners, thanks to your generosity, it is somehow my job today to speculate. <laughs> I would say that it was probably revealed last episode when Haman talks about bombarding the Earth with nuclear weapons if her demands aren't met. Haman is a person for whom the unthinkable horror of nuclear war is merely another aspect of war, different in scale but not in kind. Something to be considered and used, or at least threatened, like any other. She, like her namesake, is at once entrancing and repulsive. Fascinating, charismatic, deceptive. Herman Kahn liked to boast about thinking the unthinkable. That was, in fact, the name of his second book, and the first one that received a Japanese translation. And likewise, Haman is willing to consider anything, plan for anything, and do anything if it will bring her closer to her ultimate goal. Next time on episode 2.46, The Hammer of Xeon, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, episode 45, and Peeping Cats, Ruffly Sleeves, 
an atypical cure for depersonalization. Whack-a-mole. Fiddling while Zidane burns. Rekoa believes in nothing except the binary. Showdown in high orbit. A slow motion disaster. He was the first man to give me, what's that word? Feelings. And the consequences of refusing to kill whichever woman you're refusing to kill this week. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, Killing is the solution to every problem, out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. The TNN this week includes Ron Devache and Funky Chunk, both by Kevin McLeod. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. This is for when our, we were talking about cats. Sorry, I just mm-hmm. thought of another we're talking thing. talking about cats now. I know, but this ties better to our discussion about about why he fixates so much on Axis. Gross. In Dispatches from New York this week. New York. I'm, I know, I know, I'm going to redo it. God. <laughs> vroom, vroom. And I'm Nina, and I'm a vroom vroom. <laughs> but Katz is in no mood for adults and their excuses. I have to redo mm-hmm. that one. I think one time you told me it was not Saman, or that it had ended in an H? A-H-N. Ah. <sighs> After a certain point, I just like hate every new mobile suit. I hate all the mobile suits. <laughs> They're all dumb and stupid, and I hate them. And the fact that I have to remember their stupid names and stupid features really gets my goat. <laughs> They're all dumb, and I hate them. I'm sorry for that. Disclaimer. Nina does not actually hate all mobile suits. Do not email us. In the recaps, I can make the end line the one I think it should be. (laughs) Your power is ultimate. It is confusing that Axis is both the group and this thing. Yes, it is. That's bad naming right there. When you're talking about a people versus a landmass, it's generally quite clear. Whereas if I say Axis here, I could mean the Axis Navy, Mm -hmm. or I could mean this specific edifice. (laughs) Yeah, Axis the asteroid. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we say um, Axis Xeon to refer to this specific group of Xeon. I've noticed people say that. I don't think... It's been said in the show. It, it hasn't. Yeah. That's, like, it's, it's kind of cheating for me to say that. Like, anyway, 
I have one more paragraph of the recap. I just <laughs> you needed to vent about more stupid things. <laughs> Nina's feisty today. <laughs> just to be clear, I do like Zeta. I just also find it frustrating to write about <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> yeah, when you were talking about all the articles he wrote about Japan, I was like, gosh, no wonder Japan loved him. <laughs> Also significantly ties to my research piece for next week. You gave me an idea. That's why I had to open up my compi and like make a note. I hope it wasn't too distracting. Oh, I didn't even notice you doing it. Okay, yeah. I was like, oh, Tom said a thing. Typing as quietly as possible. Are we ready for the end matter? Do you have a wrong Gundam opinion? No. That's okay. We can do everything but the wrong Gundam yeah. opinion.